0: morning is taken from Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, and we're looking this morning at uh, verses uh, verses 10 to 14, but uh, in order to set the context of the passage, I'm going to read um, all the way from, from chapter 2, from chapter 2 in verse... Uh, verse 15, down to chapter 3, verse 14. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live by the flesh I live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not nullified the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Haven't begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so now by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now the text for our message this morning, Galatians 3, 10 to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of our God. May he write its eternal truths upon our heart this morning. You may see it. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Lord, for in this Scripture we see Christ. We see Christ publicly proclaimed as crucified. Although we did not see these things with our eyes, we see them with the eyes of faith. For we believe your word that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came into the world to save sinners that he lived a righteous life and he died a sinner's death and by faith in him our sin is credited to his account and his righteousness is credited to our account Lord we believe these things we praise you for these things Lord Jesus for you are indeed the perfect sacrifice as you bore the curse that was on us Lord, we praise you for your Holy Spirit who guides us into your truth, who, re- who regenerates our hearts, granting us repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray these things confident in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that if there are those here this morning who are not yet believers, who do not yet have faith in Christ, who are still trusting in their own righteousness. We pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would convict of sin. Convictive of righteousness that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who do believe, who are already trusting in you, may you hold these things up before our hearts and minds, also by your Holy Spirit. That we might worship you for this great salvation, this free gift that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Fake news. Fake news, it's a, a phrase that you hear pretty consistently in our culture. It's, it's, it, the, the phrase goes back to the, the early teens of, of this century and was popularized by Donald Trump who was being criticized repeatedly in the news and he said fake news and he even had fake news awards for those reporters that he, he believed were, were particularly prone to skewing the news. You can't really trust what you hear on the news but fake news is nothing new i remember so well back in a sociology of education class during my undergrad in the mid 90s before the internet and yes young people there was a time when the internet was an internaut but a professor in my class said he said to the class he said it's no wonder why the media presents things the way they do. Who owns the media? And a light bulb went off in my head. All of my mistrust of the media that that I had had through my my punk rock days came into sharp focus. Who owns the media? The Rupert Murdochs and and the Kerry Packers of the world, they were at that point some of the richest men on the planet, but through the control of information, they became some of the most powerful men on the planet. Well now, fast forward 25 years. And fake news hasn't disappeared. It has only grown. And it's and we have the popular media now added to by social media. And so wherever you turn, the media is giving you fake news. And I Remember, trying to wade through all the, the challenges with what the competing information and the narratives and the counter narratives that were being that were being proclaimed in the in the media and, and in social media. And I remember so well, it was about a year ago when some of you uh, I've shared this illustration with. When all of a sudden, you remember this well, all of a sudden the media was bombarded with news, fake news, potentially about murder hornets. Do you remember this? And for days, it was, everything was a murder hornets, murder hornets. So I was like, what's going on here? And, and I remember watching a, an interview with a, a man who's on the Weather Network, a man who'd been brought in to eradicate a colony. Of murder hornets on Vancouver Island, and they do know what a murder hornets. They're these two-inch-long hornets that have been have purportedly been introduced from Japan. And these things are—they are, say—they're they're going to decimate the bee the bee colonies. And in the purpose, in the process of eradicating this colony, this this beekeeper was—he said—he was stung seven times through his bee suit, and he said that he felt like he'd been shot. Well then, it's like, wow, okay, I don't want to meet a, a murder hornet. Then a couple of days later, all this other information started to come out and say, well, no, there aren't really any murder hornets in North America. It's, it's all a hoax. They're, 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 there's not really murder hornets here. And I thought, well, I've never seen a murder hornet. I may never see a murder hornet. What do I believe about a murder hornet? And it, it reminded me, this was a really good illustration of, of what was going on in our culture with the narratives and the counter narratives and the, the, the fake news in the media versus the fake news in the social media. And I realized, I don't know. So I retreated to what I do know. I retreated to the word of God. I went back to the Bible, back to try to, to understand and apply the, the principles that God gives us, because the word of God is sufficient that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly twa- trained and equipped And so we rely on the Word of God as Christians. This is all we have is the Word of God, the authoritative, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. It's sufficient for all matters of life and Godliness. But what happens if the message of God's Word gets distorted? What happens if the, the message of God's word be, becomes so distorted and contorted that it's not really teaching what the word of God really teaches? And we've we've done, as, as men, we've done studies on hermeneutics. It's a right understanding of the Bible, understanding it in its context, in order to try to, to figure out what the Word of God really says, so that we can be confident that what how we interpret it, how we understand it, how we apply it, lines up with. The authorial intent, what the Holy Spirit-inspired human author intended this passage to me. So what happens if the word of God, particularly the message of the gospel, gets distorted? Enter Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. The book of Galatians has been called the battle cry of the Reformation and the great charter of religious freedom, and the charter of Christian liberty, the Christian Declaration of Independence, and the Magna Carta of the church. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia sets us free. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia sets us free from trying to earn our own righteousness. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia sets us free to worship God through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the freedom that you and I need. Freedom from our attempts to earn a right standing with God. This is the freedom that ultimately matters. This is the freedom that you have no matter where you are. Our brothers and sisters who are in prison in Iran and China and Pakistan and many countries throughout the world have this freedom because of the message of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia and the rest of the Holy Scriptures. But Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia has a particular focus on setting us free from works-based righteousness. Righteousness. Now, Paul was personally invested in these churches. Paul knew these people personally. He had been directly involved in the planting of these churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Paul begins, the, as Paul begins this letter, you notice just the beginning of, the, of, the, of the, the letter, it dives right in. Normally, when Paul begins a letter, he, say, he, he begins with Blessings. And greetings. And precious. They're telling the people they are precious to him. But there is none of that in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now even the book of of 1 Corinthians, which was the church in Corinth was fraught with with all kinds of schisms and all kinds of, of problems. And the apostle Paul dealt with them each in turn. But even Paul's, let's just go there for a second, even Paul's letter to to the church in Corinth, which just a few of the things they were dividing among different pers- popular personalities. They were dividing because of uh, because of of different perspectives on um, on, on on sexual morality. They, they were dividing on having lawsuits between each other. They were they were even dividing over the Lord's table. People were actually getting drunk on communion wine. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to write Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, I wouldn't have begun it this way. He says, what well, is in verse, he first he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, grace to you, peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has given you in Christ Jesus, that in him in every way you are enriched in all speech and all knowledge and so on. Now, I would not, if I was writing a letter to the church in Corinth, I would not have begun it that way. There, he's showing that even with their schisms, even with their problems, they are still a gospel-believing, gospel-centered church. But not so the churches in Galatia. So, Paul dives in. He first lists his apostolic credentials. And he does say grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, but there is there is none of the blessings. There's no thanking God for them. Because they had corrupted the gospel. They had corrupted the truths of, of God's word, of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. There are 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul that we have in Holy Scripture. Half of the books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. Now when he had a, when he wrote a letter, he had a very specific purpose. He had, as I mentioned a moment ago, an authorial intent. There's a reason why he wrote this letter. And he wrote this letter to deal with the corruption of the gospel in the churches in Galatia. Some had crept into the church teaching that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, circumcision is kind of a big deal. What they're doing here is they're saying you need to be, you need to have faith in Jesus plus faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision. And the implication of that, it's not just faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision, it's faith in Jesus Christ plus submitting to and obeying all of the Old Testament laws of Israel in order to be saved. What is being promoted here is works-based salvation. If it is Christ plus anything, it is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ plus anything is nothing. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter to correct the church. He says that they are teaching a different gospel, a fake gospel, fake good news. Fake good news is not good news at all. In fact, in one of the most ferocious statements coming from the pen of the Apostle Paul, found in all of his corpus... He condemns these false teachers in Galatians 1.9. He says, if every, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Let him be cast into eternal hellfire. And then Paul sets out to counter the good news. Showing how the gospel, how the true good news, sets us free from legalism from being justified from any by any attempts that we have to make right a right standing with before God through obedience to the law. And he answers the question of how anyone can even think to have a right standing before the holy God. Now maybe you're here as a non-Christian today. Maybe you're here as somebody who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Maybe you've wondered how you can have a right standing before the Holy God. Or some of us here who are unbelievers might think that they already have a right standing before the Holy God. Well, let's begin in our passage this morning by looking at how you don't get a right standing before the Holy God. Verse 10 All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, the problem is not with the law itself. Paul says in First Timothy one eight, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And Romans 7.12, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good if it keeps its proper place. The law helps us to see our sin. The law is a curb against sin. The law helps us to see God's character and how he wants us to live. But the law can never give life. The law was never designed to give life. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our sin. If you are relying on your obedience to God's law in order to have a right relationship with God, you are in big trouble. You are in the biggest kind of trouble there is. Why? Because you don't do the works of the law. You don't do the works of the law. No one does the works of the law. Maybe you're familiar with, with Ray Comfort from Way the Master. He will, he will go to the, to the beaches in Southern California and he will, he'll talk to people and he'll say, so are you a good person? And most people say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. And he says, so have you ever told a lie? And the person would say, Oh yeah, you know, of course, I've told lies in the past. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you? Oh, oh yeah, okay, I stole some stuff from the store when I was a kid. Okay. Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? And then, okay, so most men that answer the question just say, Well, yeah, of course. Everybody does. So what he goes on to say then is so you're telling me that you are lying. Thieving, adulterer at heart, and you are a good person. You see, the standard of God's law is not your standard, it's God's standard. It's God's standard of holiness. And it really comes from the heart. The, the sin, even if even if you want something that belongs to somebody else, the Bible calls that covetousness. And that's one of the Ten Commandments you, you shall not covet. If you're angry at a person, unrighteous anger is actually murder in your heart. Lustful thoughts are adultery in your heart. And they render you guilty before the Holy God. So Paul is saying here that no one is a good person. Not according to God's standard of good. Paul continues, as it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, Paul here is, is quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, 26. If you have a Bible, uh, let's, let's go there for a minute. To Deuteronomy, so fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy 26. Sorry, 27, 27, sorry, 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. Now this comes from a long string of curses that Paul lays down. or Sorry, that Moses lays down as, as God's prophet. See, this takes place. The, the end of Deuteronomy comes as the people of Israel have just, they've been set free from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they, they have been, they've been—they crossed through the Red Sea that God has parted for them. They've now wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of the rebellion as they waited for that generation to die out as a new generation came. And, and so these people are, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, are just about to enter into the promised land. So God reminds them of the covenant. He reminds them of the covenant that God had made with them. He reminds them of the blessings For covenant obedience and the curses for covenant disobedience, and so what he does is, you can see at the uh, at the beginning of of chapter twenty-seven, verses twelve and thirteen, the Lord through His prophet Moses tells half of the people to stand on Mount Ebal and the other half of the people to stand on Mount Gerizim, and the people who are on so all the people of Israel divide between these two mountains and the valley in the middle. And he he says, okay, the people who are Mount Ebal represent those who are under God's curse people from Mount Gerizim represent people who are under God's blessing. And then he pronounces for two chapters that this list of horrific curses and superlative blessings. I referenced this a couple of weeks ago when I explained that, that people do not experience God's judgment. They do not experience these covenant curses in immediately but that the curses are coming. God's judgment is coming because God is holy and just. God must punish sin. So fast forward now from this time, 1300 years, approximately 1300 years later. By the time the Apostle Paul comes on the scene, it's it's after the the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension. And then soon after this, the Apostle Paul, a, a former pharisee who was in the process of actually persecuting christians for their faith you know the story in acts chapter 9 he's heading to damascus for the express purpose of persecuting christians and god knocks him off of his his horse and says this is the lord jesus christ appears to him and says saul saul why are you persecuting me and then he sends paul on to damascus with a new mission a mission rather than a mission of destroying the church, of the mission instead of building up the church. The Apostle Paul knows legalism. He knows Phariseeism. He calls himself in his prior times a, a chief of Pharisees, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But when he understands the gospel, he says all of that before. All of my attempts at self-righteousness were as dung. They're worthless. And so, 1,300 years later, when the Apostle Paul arrives on the scene and when he writes this letter to the church in Galatia around the year, um, the late 40s or early 50s A.D. At that time, many of the Jews to whom he was ministering actually believed that Israel was indeed under God's curse for breaking (laughs) God's law. But here, these to whom Paul is writing in Galatia had come under the influence of the Judaizers that taught you that you could keep God's law. In fact, you must keep God's law in order to be saved. They said you had to be circumcised to be saved. And again, not just circumcised, but you had to obey the law in order to be saved. And now you and I know It's not just Israel who broke God's law. We also broke God's covenant by breaking God's law. You and I also deserve God's covenant curses for disobedience. And you and I also deserve God's condemnation for covenant disobedience. Think again of of Ray Comfort's question. Are you a good person by God's standards? according to God's standard of righteousness, you are not a good person. We all have to admit that they are. And I'm not trying to insult anyone here. The same is true for me. Whether you're here as a Christian or not, you are not a good person. Verse 11 of Galatians 3, Paul repeats his assertion. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. But now Paul shows us how people can be justified by God. He says, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is not just a New Testament principle. Paul's quoting the prophet, the prophet Habakkuk from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Martin Luther. The Augustinian monk, the, the, the former Roman Catholic monk, was was in the castle in Wittenberg, in his in his cell studying Romans one seventeen. When God's light broke through his darkness, let's turn for a moment, please, to to Romans chapter one verse seventeen. For in it, from the context, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as Luther considered this, the righteousness of God terrified him. The righteousness of God terrified Luther because Luther knew that God is righteous and that he isn't righteous. And all of his attempts, all of his, his efforts to do the right thing to obey God, failed. He tried and tried and tried to keep God's law in order to be righteous. And he tried and he tried and he tried, but he failed. But then finally he understood that phrase in the second half of verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Righteousness comes not by obedience to the law, but by faith. Righteousness only comes by faith. And it is only the person who has this faith that receives eternal life. So now, for Martin Luther, Romans 1 16 and 17 made sense. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again and again in Luther's writings, he says that it was this moment, not the nailing of the 95 pieces at the castle church in Wittenberg, and, and not the Diet of Worms. It was this moment when he discovered righteousness that comes by faith, that this was the pivotal moment in his life. It was in this moment when in Luther's own words, he says he was born again. This moment was not just the pivotal moment in Luther's life. This moment was actually the pivotal moment in the Reformation because here in this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, the gospel was rediscovered. The righteous shall live by faith. And so much like the Apostle Paul came to the, to the churches in Galatia to correct a wrong understanding of the gospel. Of course, Martin Luther is not an, an apostle. But Martin Luther was a man of God who, who redirected the church, the churches in Europe back to the gospel. And he hinged on this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a foundational principle in the gospel. This is the good news that caused Luther to proclaim based on on this this phrase. He said, the epistle of the Galatians is my own epistle. I betrothed it to myself. It is my Katie Bambora. He said, it's like I'm married to this this gospel in, in in the letter to the Galatians. The righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness and life come not through obedience to the law, but by faith. There are all kinds of people telling us things that, that not, maybe not the, the Ten Commandments, in fact, in some cases quite contrary to the Ten Commandments. You have to do these things in order to be saved, whether it's the, the social gospel or a particular, particular social stance on an issue. You have to do these things in order to be faithful. In some cases, you need to do these things in order to even be saved different gospel the righteous shall live by faith but some may be wondering then well faith in what before he gets there Paul tells us what faith is and he's already told us how you cannot receive salvation now he tells us what faith is not says in verse 12 the law is not of faith rather the one who does them shall live by them So in context, the Apostle Paul is is saying here that relying on the works of the law is the, the opposite of faith. It's antithetical to faith. If you are trusting in your obedience to anything to save you, you are denying the faith. It's fake news. It's a fake gospel. So now we return to the question, faith in what? Or rather, faith in Whom, verse 13, central passage for this message and of of this passage, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So then the righteous will live by faith in Christ Jesus. That's who you have to have faith in. The Lord Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. We've clearly established that. The only righteousness that you can have is an imputed righteousness. When you turn away from your sin and put your faith in Christ. When, that, that, when by believing in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to your account. It's, it's as though you were to, to go before a judge. Now, pretend this is a a judge's bench. And you're sitting there in the dock. And the judge says, you are guilty for this, 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 and this. But the judge comes down from the bench and says, I'm going to credit my good works towards your account. As we'll see in a moment, I'm going to take the punishment for you. Now of course we know that that, that a, a human judge could never do this. We have to have faith only in Jesus Christ, who, who's the only one who is, according to God's law, the only one who is ever not guilty. The only one who's actually righteous. It's only Jesus Christ who can come down from the bench and, and credit it, and credit guilty sinners like you and me with his righteousness. Only Jesus Christ. Him alone. There's salvation in no, none other, therefore there's no name given under heaven, whereby men can be saved. There's no salvation in Buddha. There's no salvation in Muhammad. There's no salvation in Krishna. There's no salvation in Mary. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ. Him alone. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other good news. Everything else is fake good news. Galatians 2.6 is as clear as crystal. I read it earlier. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I hope you are clear on what Paul's premise is in this. You are guilty. You have no righteousness. Your only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account. But then verse, in verse 13, Paul shows us how Christ saves us. Again, we've, been, we've been focusing so far on the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness, of his righteousness credited to our account. But if you've been trusting in your own good works, you know that you're, you're doomed. You have nothing. But if you're trusting in Christ, you're beginning to see the gospel. This is the first half of the gospel, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners. The other half is made explicit here in verse 13. Let me read it again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. The Apostle Paul here is quoting Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Let me read verses 22 uh, and 23. The man has committed a crime punishable by death. He is to be put to death. You hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man is cursed by God. So the Jews to whom Je- to whom Jesus came and administered in his, in his incarnation, they denied him. They, d- they denied who he is. They, they denied faith in him. Jesus Christ became a stumbling block for the Jews. And so at the end of his earthly ministry, they handed him over to the Romans to be crucified because in their mind he committed blasphemy and deserved to die. Turn with me please to John chapter 19. John 19, verse 4. When Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out before the Jews, he says, See, now bring him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then so he brought Jesus out to present him before the people wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, bloodied and battered at the, the hands of the Romans. And he says again, behold, he says, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers, the leaders of Judaism, when they saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate responds, he says, You take him and crucify him, I find no guilt in him. And then these Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Because Jesus Christ declared that he is God, The Jews accused him of blasphemy and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified, to be hanged on a tree. They believed that Jesus was cursed by God and deserved to die. Friends, Jesus was not cursed by God because he made himself to be God. Jesus Christ was cursed by God because he was God. Because Jesus Christ is the God-man. And because he came, according to the the covenant of redemption, the the plan in eternity passed between the Father and the Son to redeem his people. Jesus Christ agreed to take on human flesh. God the Son became a human being. Truly God and truly man lived the righteous life and gave his life over to death at the hands of the Jews, at the hands of the Romans, and ultimately the hand of Almighty God. Jesus Christ was cursed by God. He bore the curse for us on the tree. Only the Jews had understood this. It's in their own holy books. It's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 10 11. We, we read it earlier. Written over 700 years before the coming of Christ. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was right there in their own book. But they missed it. But it's not its not just Jews that Jesus Christ is a stumbling block for. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block for Muslims as well. You may not realize this, but Muslims actually believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Muslims actually believe that that Jesus Christ performed miracles. They believe he was sinless. They even believe believe he's going to have a millennial reign. But they do not believe that Jesus was crucified. And it's because of this. It's because of Deuteronomy 21, 23. Because cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. They believe that Jesus Christ was sinless. And so they they can't reconcile how the sinless God could be cursed now there's other things of course that they, that they deny as well but, but they could not see how it fits together that Jesus Christ actually became cursed by God that many believe that, that somehow that, that Judas somehow miraculously took Jesus' place on the cross that it was a, 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 an imposter there on the cross instead of Jesus they don't understand that Jesus was cursed on the cross it's perf- God's perfect plan in eternity past that he would send his son to die in the place of sinners. You're going to preach on this on Sunday. Acts 2.23 from Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God put his son to grief for the sins of his people. The soul of Christ is the offering for guilt. He bears their iniquities. Though sinless, he was considered be a sinner. Though he was blessed by God, he bore the curse of God for your sins and for my sins. You and I have committed capital crimes against the Holy God. You and I deserve the death penalty, eternal death, separated from God in hell. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. You and I were under the curse of the law as covenant breakers. You and I were all lawbreakers. We still are. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, this word that is translated here redeemed. In Galatians 3, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, is, is really that it's an, an image that comes from the slave market. When a slave was, was was up for auction, he, he could be purchased back and set free. That's what it means to be redeemed. It means to be purchased back and to be set free but you and i are purchased back not from slavery to to human beings you and i are purchased back and set free from slavery to the world and the flesh and the devil we are set purchased back redeemed from sin we have been purchased by the blood of christ jesus christ suffered and died on the cross for our sins not for his sins. He was sinless. He was punished by God for the sins of his people, for his bride. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the second half of Galatians 13. Christ became a curse for us. He bore the covenant curses for lawbreakers. A a lot of narratives and stories and things that that talk about the gospel focus on the, the physical suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we don't want it to to under, undermine that or downplay it at all, it was horrific. It was the, the most, most heinous and, and painful way that, that somebody could die, is they were, they had nails driven, spikes, nine inch spikes driven through their wrists. They were hung up on a metal cross, or wooden cross rather, and they were, they had these metal spikes that also driven through their ankle, and, and as, as they were, were hanging there, in order to breathe, they had to put weight on on those spikes. The spikes that went through all the bundled nerves in their wrists that went into their hands. It was excruciatingly painful. And what would usually happen is over over the, the course of days, the, the, the individual hanging on the cross would be would, would their would slowly tire out and they would get to the point where they and the, the pain would just wear them out so they could not lift their weight anymore. And they would die from asphyxiation, they would suffocate. Horrifically painful. That was not the worst part of the pain that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for you and me. He was the sin bearer. The sinless God-man became the sin bearer for his people, for you and for me and and for all of our brothers and sisters around the world. All who have ever believed in, in Jesus Christ. He bore our sins. Every sin that you or I have ever committed or ever will commit, Jesus Christ carried that, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. His Holy Father punished him in our place. The Father cursed the Son for your sins and for mine. It was so excruciating that the Lord cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the greatest pain of the cross. This, this so-called the, the dereliction of Christ, this, this feeling the forsakenness of God on the cross. That's what you and I deserve. But Jesus bore it in our place. He bore the curse for us. So then finally, in verse 14, Paul says that, so that in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, if you know your definition history, you know that Abraham was the first Jew. We, We looked at this through our studies in Genesis a couple of years ago. God promised Abraham that all of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Genesis 12, 3. The Jews traced their heritage back to Abraham. But again and again in the scriptures, we see that it was not a physical heritage from Abraham that saves anyone, but spiritual heritage. It is the spiritual heritage of Abraham that is saved. Paul has just said in Galatians 3.6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not saved by works. Abraham was saved by faith. He believed the same gospel that you and I believe. We see it more clearly now, living as we do in the events after Golgotha, after the the crucifixion and the the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. But Abraham was saved exactly the same way that we are. Abraham lived by faith and was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7. You know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith. Are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? Are you a man or a woman of this faith? A faith in Jesus Christ? Are you a son or a daughter of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ? Or is Jesus Christ a stumbling block for you? Are you still like those Jews trying to earn your own righteousness? Instead, will you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you were running from a forest fire and you could feel the heat of the flames, you could feel the, the, the hairs in the back of your neck being singed by this fire that is breathing down your neck, and you're running for your life. You know, if you stop for a second, you're gone. You come to a cliff and you see that this cliff is, it's, it's too far down for you to climb down. It's too sheer, there's no, no handholds. It's too far across for you to jump across. You could choose death by fire or death by falling. But then you see a bridge. And you you take a quick look at this bridge. You know you don't have much time. You take a look at this bridge. You say, well, okay, I I believe this bridge is is strong enough to get me to carry me across to safety. I believe this bridge is is able to save me. You could be a, an engineer and say, yep, okay, this I could, yep. Not much time for doing your, your slide ruler here, but but yep, I believe this bridge can save me. It's not faith in the ability of the bridge to save you that saves you. It's not enough to say, I believe that this bridge can save me. You actually have to use the bridge. You actually have to walk across the bridge or run across the bridge to safety. That is your only hope. It's not believing in the bridge, but is trusting in the bridge. It's not enough to to believe the, the gospel is a set of, of abstract facts. Of a checklist of things you believe. To have, have good doctrine. You can have good doctrine. But be completely unregenerate. You actually have to trust in Jesus Christ. You actually have to take the bridge. Across to the other side. And safety. Now if you were here this morning as somebody who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are here this morning as someone who's still trusting in your own righteousness or trusting in, in anything else other than Jesus Christ to save you, you're under God's judgment and you will die either by fire or by falling, or in this case, by both. You're cast into eternal hellfire. But this is an opportunity for you. You have seen and heard Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Will you turn to Christ and be saved? Will you receive the good news and be saved? Or will you keep on trusting in fake news? Brothers and sisters who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we praise God that that we remember that, that it's not just on Good Friday, we remember the death of Christ every day, at least I hope you do. You need the gospel every bit as much today as you did on that first day you came to saving faith. But continue to to hold these things before your heart and mind. Continue to, to preach the gospel to yourself. Continue to remember this great salvation you have in Christ Jesus. and Be set free through the gospel to worship him, and to give him the glory that he deserves. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for this great gospel. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. And Lord Jesus, even as you gave up your life, you said, it is finished. You had paid the debt. You had borne the wrath. You became the curse bearer for your people. And Lord, we thank you, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we thank you and we praise you for this great salvation. And Lord, we believe, as those who have been regenerated through the power of your Holy Spirit, we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to regenerate hearts even now. We pray that that what has been taught here, so far as it accords with your word, will be received with the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would also grant repentance and repentance faith. We pray this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.